is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Episode 8, our discussion of digital therapeutics. Plus, from The Vault, Conversation 18.4 from Season 3, in which Jeff Lazarus and Jorn Schottenberg discuss their objectives for Sections 4, 5, and 6, basically the second day, of the then-upcoming inaugural Innovations in Nathalie Care meeting in Barcelona. This conversation continues the focus on better therapeutics, but more from Naeem Al-Khoury's point of view. Naeem, who served as principal investigator for Better Therapeutics NASH trial, describes the thinking that went into trial design in terms of study length, patient targets, and primary endpoints. He goes on to share his downstream vision, which is that patients will be treated with both digital therapeutics and drugs, an approach he believes will provide significant synergistic benefits. From here, the other panelists join the conversation really for the first time. Jorn Schottenberg discusses the value and importance of having quality of life as an endpoint, and Louise Campbell expands on the benefits of a subtly different approach to apps she describes as non-medical, in which patients manage their own health through the apps and perhaps other therapeutic interventions, which most likely will be non-pharmacologic, at least in early stages. As the conversation ends, I ask Mark to expand on better therapeutics focus on and utilization of cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, in their apps, and he responds. The future for digital healthcare is extremely rich and exciting, but it also has unique challenges fitting into the existing healthcare ecosystem. This episode captures both the challenges and the excitement while remaining optimistic and true to the potential for digitalization and AI to improve healthcare over time. These are big questions with complicated answers. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. Name Alkuri. Yeah, thank you, Mark, for the excellent summary. First of all, I want to let you know, Roger, that Mark and his team found me on your podcast. So basically, you can take credit for everything that Mark said. If it wasn't for you, probably we wouldn't have done this proof of concept study. We need commission. I'm going to just comment first on uh, digital therapeutics in, in general, and then I'll get to the specifics of the proof of concept we did with better therapeutics. As you guys know, I mean, not all apps are created equal, and there's a lot in the space. So you have apps like the Noom app, where we actually did another proof of concept based on improvement on FibroScan. Uh, Noom is uh, something that our patients can download, pay a fee, and then you get access to the app. But this is not a prescription digital therapeutic. You don't need a physician to prescribe it. It's not going to be covered by insurance. It's a good approach for some patients and we will have results that hopefully will present this summer with the Noom app. And then the second category is uh, prescription digital therapeutics and this is the Better Therapeutic app. Again, this uh, will have to go through a rigorous evaluation process. You can get FDA approval for a specific indication. Mark can tell you more about their diabetes program that's sitting with the FDA. But you know, to get something to be FDA approved for as a NASH therapeutic, we really still need to figure out what the FDA will require from a prescription digital therapeutic where there is really no major adverse events. You're not worried too much about safety. Do we have to do biopsy and histology improvement? Can we get away with NITs and non-invasive tests? And I think it's a conversation that needs to happen. But I think the risk-benefit ratio is very different than a new drug. And then the last category is what Joe is doing with Cronwell, where you know you have the app, you have the digital therapeutic, but also they have boots on the ground, they have a team 
team and I'll let Joe explain the approach more. But we're also excited to announce that at Arizona Liver Health, we implemented Cronwell now as part of how we manage patients with NASH. It's still limited to certain insurance providers, but this is something that is covered by insurance and the team helped them get a scale at home. They helped them with lifestyle intervention. They have the app on the phone. So it's a more comprehensive approach. So, so much is happening in this space. So going back to Mark and Better Therapeutic, it was a very exciting proof of concept. And I really enjoyed working with his team because they listened. We developed the protocol together. We came up with the inclusion exclusion criteria, and they really were willing to invest in generating data with MRI PDFF, which is costly, but I see it as probably one of the more accurate NITs, especially for a short-term study. You know, 90 days, you cannot really look for fibrosis improvement. So you have to look at things that can change. So we had ALT, AST, we looked at uh, PDFF, and we also looked at the FAST score based on the fibro scan that includes cap, liver stiffness, and AST as a more global way to assess for liver health. And the signal was uh, positive. We saw reduction in MRI, PDFF, ALT, and the FAST score with weight loss. What I liked is it was minimal involvement from my staff. So basically, we signed up the patients in the initial visit. They had the MRI, and then they're gone for 90 days, and then they came back for the last visit and the repeat MRI and labs. And the fact that, you know, within 90 days, using an app, a digital therapeutic, we were able to see these results. I was very encouraged to see the signal. The feedback we got was positive. They enjoyed uh, being on the app. But as Mark said, it's really all about engagement, how much time you spend, how many articles you read. The more engagement, the better weight loss, fat reduction, and improvement in in liver enzymes. This is something that, uh, you know, I want Arizona Liver Health to be a leader in, is really partnering with digital therapeutic companies and uh, being able to conduct these proof of concept studies where we help with the protocol design and the execution of the trial. And even we help the team also with the analysis of the data and what the statistician needed to look at. I think the future is going to belong to digital therapeutics, maybe alone for patients with NAFLD and maybe early NASH, but also in combination with the new therapeutic agents that we are developing. The first wave is going to be with resmeterone, but um, also even with more effective weight loss approaches like semaglutide and terzipatide. We learned that if you stop these medicines, patients tend to gain weight afterwards. So I think we need ways to maintain the success we obtain with these uh, therapeutic agents and potentially be able to wean off some patients so they don't have to stay on drugs uh, for the rest of their lives. I think another piece is maybe insurance providers will require a structured lifestyle intervention for patients with early NASH before they approve therapeutic agents. And maybe we can provide that answer using digital therapeutics instead of having to refer to a dietitian and wait a few weeks before they have, you know, the first visit. And then they have to do the whole program for a few months. So we can maybe provide the app early on, check that box that we did a lifestyle intervention and get them on the drugs. So a lot to talk about, but this is my spiel on the whole field of digital therapeutics and what we're doing at Arizona Liver Health. And I am a believer and I think more to come on this in the next few years. Jörn Schattenberg. Naeem and uh, Mark, congratulations. It sounds great. And we'll want to hand it over to Joe just to learn how, you know, he builds this in his uh, care provision at Arizona Health. Uh, that sounds great. It's too bad you're not based in Germany, Mark. I'm happy for Naeem that you guys paired up. Uh, it really sounds like a baseline therapy to me. It's something we've been discussing. You know, how can you engage and keep patients on it? And also an endpoint that came to my mind, and you might have been discussing this, is obviously quality of life where you set the positive aspect of engagement. And I think for something that has a positive benefit ratio, as you highlighted, Naeem, is this could also be a valid endpoint. Louise Campbell. I found it fascinating and it's 
obviously something that I engage with a lot, but from a non-medical side in one aspect, did you find the patients felt less medicalised? Because one of the things that I always find and struggle with is once we introduce patients to a medical pathway, there's the patient role, very well documented, very well evidenced, and people don't want to be told they've got yet another thing wrong with them. However, engaging in digital technology seems to do the opposite. I can do it on my phone, I can do it there, and I can be normal person still working at it. Was that something you gained any feedback on in patient experience or engagement levels? Michael Berman. Yeah, absolutely. I'll comment on that and then see if Naeem has something to add as well. But one of the consistent things we find in our work is that patients often express a real appreciation for the, the nature of the engagement. And specifically, they really appreciate what might be characterized as a non-medical approach in terms of not being told what to do. So really, the, the way our product works is by providing a therapeutic construct that doesn't tell someone exactly what they need to do and what they can't do, but really shows them a direction that they can move into that is going to be supportive and healthy and helps them move at the pace that is right for them and as quickly as possible. And so the experience that is often reflected is one that patients feel that they have more control over their life. They typically do report an improvement in quality of life that's been found consistently in our studies as was found in this as well. And I think that speaks to the fact that, you know, patients feel like they are in charge of the changes that they're they are making and they have a tool that can support them in that journey. And that the aim is not just to treat a number, which is important. It's important for the numbers to improve, but really it's only become sustainable if patients are making changes that make them feel good. And that very much comes through in the day-to-day experience. They express a lot of appreciation, for example, to the physicians and clinicians, in this case at, at Arizona Liver House, for providing that opportunity to have that experience. Louise's question raised one I'd like to ask before we go on, which is in your literature, you talk a fair amount about the use of CBT. And CBT is one of these uh, acronyms that I think a lot of people hear the acronym, but don't necessarily understand exactly what the premises are or how it works. I'm a big fan. Uh, I have a family member who at a much more severe and psychiatric level figured out how to put their life together with the aid of CBT. So it would be great if you just take a couple minutes and explain what that is and how that fits into this. And then after that, we'll go to Joe. But we'd love to. So CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, really came about in the 1960s and is now considered the gold standard for helping people make meaningful and clinically meaningful behavior changes. When most people hear CBT, they they think about its application to anxiety and depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. These are gold standard uh, approaches to use CBT. But two things are not widely appreciated. One is that CBT has evolved since the 1960s. It includes a lot of newer forms of CBT, things like mindfulness-based therapy, dialectic behavioral therapy, uh, acceptance control therapy. So when we use the term CBT, we're usually using it as an umbrella construct to think about all these evidence-based approaches to changing behavior. And the second thing that is not widely known is that CBT, because it has proven so successful in in any of the psychiatric conditions, uh, has been applied to a growing number of conditions. And for the past 10 to 20 years, has been applied successfully to cardiometabolic conditions like type 2 diabetes 
disease and heart disease and NASH uh, and NAFL as well. However, the most common approach is to use CBT to treat things like uh, depression and anxiety because these things are often comorbid with cardiometabolic conditions. And so it turns out when you treat the anxiety and depression, the diabetes, for example, gets better as well. Uh, in our case, we thought that there was room to take the concepts of CBT beyond that and actually use the principles of CBT, which really can boil down to the idea that behaviors are ultimately generated by the brain, that what we do, we do for a reason. And it's because of the ideas and the thoughts and the emotions that we have about the choices that we're making that actually drive behavior. And you need to make that process or that awareness conscious in order to offer and reframe ways to make thinking about behaviors more helpful and then to figure out how to gain the skills that you need to put those new ideas into action. So in our approach, we've leveraged the principles of CBT in that broad umbrella sense, but we've also specifically worked to develop a form that targets behaviors around diet and exercise and other lifestyle behaviors beyond those around uh, mood and anxiety. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with another innovative and inspiring conversation. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.